Our Lord and our God, we believe that you have spoken. You have spoken uh, supremely in your Son, the living Word. You've also spoken and you continue to speak in your written Word, the Scriptures. We believe that. But we also believe that it is like us very often not to hear you when you speak. We put stumbling blocks up in front of our faces by setting things up that are more valuable to us than you. We set up stumbling blocks of disobedience, of hard-heartedness, of cynicism, of bitterness, so many things. Lord, it's like us in so many ways so often not to hear you when you speak. And so, Lord, we simply ask that you would open our ears. Oh, Lord, as you speak to us in your word, please, please be sure that everyone here hears you, that they hear what you have to say. And I trust that your spirit will take the word that is read and preached and run with it in hundreds of different directions according to the needs of those who are here. Lord, please do that. Make us submissive and, and humble under your hand, we pray. Exalt Christ, that as we have sung together, we would crescendo together over the next several minutes our, our shout of praise, hallelujah, what a Savior. And that we... truly would delight to follow him. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working our way through Mark's gospel for about six months now. And as I said last week, we were beginning to make a transition from the first half to the second half of Mark. Well, we we come to that transition uh, today. Mark, uh, very simple structure. He spends the first half of the book from the very first verse to chapter 8, verse 30, driving uh, at the purpose of showing you the answer to one question, which is, who is Jesus? We find that climactically answered today in chapter 8, verse 30, as Peter confesses that he's the Christ. And then immediately, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8 and continuing to the end of the gospel, Mark is showing you the answers to two different questions. And those questions are, what does it mean for Jesus that he is the Christ? And what does it mean for any would-be followers that he is the Christ? So if the first half of Mark is asking, who is Jesus?, The second half is asking, what is the nature of his Messiahship, and what is the nature of Christian discipleship? And it's that transition that we come to today. Those are the most important questions in the world. And every one of you here this morning, every one of you must be clear about the answers to those three questions. Who is Jesus? What is the nature of his Messiahship? What did that mean for him? What did he come to do? And what does that mean for those who would follow after Christ? You can't have just your own ideas about what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. You don't get to define that. I don't get to define that. He gets to define that. And we need to be clear about his definition. 
And so each one of us needs to understand these things and carefully consider our response. Jesus is king. He's God's king. We see the disciples this morning finally recognize that. And it does mean, it will mean power and glory and a crown. But as Jesus makes clear to them this morning, he'll have to enter his glory by way of the cross. Tim Keller, uh, in one of his recent books, uh, is called The King's Cross. It's a study of Mark's gospel. And in his study of this section of Mark's gospel, here's what he says. Jesus is saying, I'm a king, but a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. So let's read this text. Mark 8, verse 27 through Mark 9, verse 1. This is God's Word. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed." when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. First thing you see in this passage, obviously, is the climactic answer to this question that Peter's been driving at, who is Jesus? We find it beginning in verse 27 as it drives to verse 30 in the confession of Peter. So the first thing we see is this this climactic confession. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And as in our own day, we can see through the disciples' answer that people had various ideas about who Jesus was. People were not opinionless about him. Many of them thought he was a prophet, perhaps Elijah or John the Baptist, these great prophetic figures of the Old Testament bleeding into uh, even Jesus' own day, the ministry of John the Baptist, his his forerunner. So many people recognize in Jesus prophetic qualities.
qualities. He's a prophet of God. Well, he's not just a prophet, but the prophet. But the fact is their confession didn't go far enough. But Jesus is driving the disciples, as he drives you, not just to consider what other people say, but what about you? What do you say? What do you say about Jesus this morning? You're on the spot this morning, every one of you and I. You're on the spot this morning to answer that question as the Lord himself poses it to you. Who do you say that I am? What's your answer? Who, how are you responding to me? You've seen, you've heard, even you as you've sat, if you've been at Redeemer before, you've, you've sat and you've heard sermons and you've even followed this study of Mark and you've seen week after week on full color, high def display, the power, the sovereign, divine power of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who do you say he is? Well, that's the question Jesus presents to his disciples. And Peter answers on behalf of the rest, you are the Christ. It really is a climactic confession. Because what Peter is saying is that you, Jesus, who stand right in front of us on this soil, you are the fulfillment of all of God's promises that he's been making to his people for these thousands of years. It's a remarkable moment. You are the Christ. You're the, you're the long-awaited Messiah. You're God's anointed one. That's what the word Christos means. Christ, anointed one, Messiah. You're God's anointed king, the long-awaited Savior who's come to deliver his people from all their sin and sorrow. So Peter makes this climactic confession. But then immediately after this great confession, Jesus begins to do the unthinkable. He begins to teach his disciples things that are very hard for them to accept and understand. And it's clear that no one was expecting anything he had to say. So we move from this climactic confession to the shocking revelation that begins in verse 31. Look at it again. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In this passage, in verse 38 and and then again in verse 1, and in many other passages ahead of us in Mark's gospel, Jesus makes it very clear that his kingdom indeed is one of great power and glory. However, the king must first suffer many things. Do you notice that little word there? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Why Why does Jesus say he must? Not just that he would, but he must. It's a little word, but it's one of the most surprising and wonderful words in one of the most surprising and wonderful sentences in the whole world. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And this must applies to everything in this verse. In other words, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. That is, all of the ruling authorities in Israel. He must be killed. He must be raised on the third day. All of this must happen for Jesus What he has come to do, his suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, is not merely a plan, but it is a necessity. It must be. 
Well, why must it be? Why must these things take place? They're necessary because they're rooted in God's sovereign, eternal plan. If the elect of God are going to be saved from their sin, then the Christ, who's the Son of Man, the glorious one, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. The cross was necessary because it was there and only could be there that God would crush his Son as the substitute for sinners, as the sin-bearer for his people. This is why Jesus uses the word must. It's the must of the divine decree. It's the must of a righteous salvation. And it is the must of God's redeeming love. And Mark tells us that Jesus said this to them plainly. That's an important detail. Verse 32, he said this to them plainly. Now, what do you remember about the way Jesus has been speaking previous to this? Mark has actually gone out of his way to tell us that Jesus has not been speaking plainly to this point, but rather has been concealing the truth in the forms of parables so that many people would be, have their eyes veiled to the truth. He's been speaking opaquely, but now he's speaking plainly. He speaks plainly. There's no confusion about what he's saying. But though it's impossible for them to miss what he's saying, the reality of it is too great for them to accept, which is why Peter responds as he does. So you have this great climactic confession. And then you have this shocking revelation from Jesus about what it means for him to be the Christ, to be the suffering one, the one who must die and be rejected and then be raised. And then it's very interesting because what we see next is satanic opposition to Jesus' teaching. Notice in verse 32, after Jesus tells them what his mission is, what it will mean for him to be the Christ, what does Peter do? Verse 32, Peter says, Jesus, come here. Come over here. We need to talk. Jesus, what you've said is all wrong. You see, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, so far in Mark, we've seen Jesus rebuking demons. We've seen Jesus rebuking wind and waves. But now we see Peter rebuking the Lord, rebuking Jesus, taking him to task for what he's just been telling them. Now, we need to appreciate what's going on in Peter's mind. He had just realized that Jesus was the Christ, that here's the, here's the Messiah, here's the Savior of the world, come. Here's the Savior of Israel, come. How could he come to suffer and die? How could the king, who's greater than David, who's come to establish his throne in Israel to drive out our enemies, to liberate us, to establish his eternal kingdom, how could that have anything to do with his suffering, rejection, and death? Peter had no categories for this in his theology of the Messiah. And it's not just Peter. There is no indication that anyone had put this together. You can go through the Old Testament as we did this morning in places like Psalm 22 and especially Isaiah 53. And from this vantage point, from where we are on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, see, of course, that's what God was, was pointing to. Of course, that's what the prophets were speaking of as they 
They tried to peer into what was awaiting them and the mysteries of Christ. But no one had put together that the great Messiah King and the suffering servant of the Lord were one and the same. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Christ, Messiah, Son of Man, the King of the kingdom, suffering and death. And Peter's reaction is understandable against that backdrop. But though it's understandable, he needed to be rebuked. Jesus looks, it's very interesting, he looks and he sees the other disciples who are standing there and they're hearing what Peter's saying. And so Jesus turns to them and he rebukes Peter. And he rebukes him in the strongest of terms. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about this in a worldly way. You're thinking about this according to the way you would design it. But it's not the way God has designed it. Get behind me, Satan. Now, what's behind this? Why, why does Jesus address Peter like that? If we need to understand why Peter rebuked the Lord, we need to understand why Jesus rebuked Peter in this way. Well, Jesus had already been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, hadn't he? You can read the fullest account of that is in Matthew 4. The Mark hints at it in chapter 1. But you see, if you look in Matthew 4, there are three temptations that are detailed there. The third one is this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, Jesus is hearing Satan's accent in Peter's words. What was the essence of Satan's temptation of Jesus that we've just read? There doesn't have to be a cross. That's what he's saying to Jesus. You can have it all. You can have the glory. You can have the crown. There's no need for the suffering. There's no need for the cross. Jesus resists Satan, resists this temptation to have the glory without the suffering because he knows it's a lie. He knows that he must suffer and be killed, that this is the only way to save the people his father has given him. So when Peter looks at, uh, rather when Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter says, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter has unwittingly become the mouthpiece of Satan because he's wanting to say the same thing to Jesus. Jesus, no, no, no. No, let's, let's do the glory. Let's do the crown. There's no need for suffering. Why would you suffer? And we all fall into this. We want the crown without the cross. We want the glory without the suffering. We want the peace without the prayer. We want the, the assurance without the faith. We want the comfort without the call. But there's no Christianity without the cross. And that's true for Jesus and it's true for you if you would follow him. It's only through his death on the cross that the righteous requirements of an infinitely holy God could be satisfied. So to the cross he must go. And only then on to the glory of his resurrection and exaltation. The, the fact of the matter is the coming glory of Jesus was far greater than Peter had ever dared to imagine. Peter wants glory, doesn't he? He wants the messianic kingdom. In reality, the messianic kingdom is far greater than anything Peter's begun to imagine. But the prelude to that victory was suffering and death. Jesus would win by losing. 
When Jesus rebukes Peter, what we see is that the love of Jesus Christ for his people is a great cross-shaped love. We really need to see in Jesus' Jesus resolute here. He's resisting yet another temptation to shy away from the cross. We see how agonizing that is as we come to Gethsemane. This was no easy burden for him to bear. But yet again, he refuses to shy away from the cross, and he does so because that's how great his love for his people is. Nothing would keep him from the cross. It had to be because you, his people, had to be his. The father had given a people to his son. The son had come into the world to take them to be his own, to accomplish salvation for them. And nothing, not even the unspeakable physical and spiritual horrors of the cross would keep him from that. So we find this climactic confession, you're the Christ. Jesus very quickly says, yes, you're right, and what that means for me is the cross. But he's not done with the disciples yet. He gathers them together with the rest of the crowd and says, and that doesn't just mean the cross for me. That means the cross for you. He says, beginning in verse 34, if any of you would follow me, then you must deny yourself and take up the cross. In other words, what we see here is that Christian discipleship is a cruciform calling. It's a cross-shaped calling. Let me ask you this question. If God exalted His sinless, eternal, only begotten Son only after His suffering... What do you think his program with you will be as his adopted children? Do you think that Jesus would experience the cross before the crown and then you not follow in that same pattern? As a matter of fact, Jesus, it's not just that he goes from cross to crown. It's that he goes from crown to cross to crown. And that's the same pattern for you as as believers Jesus goes from eternal glory where he, is, where he was with God forever, where he was exalted as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He goes from crown to cross to crown. Paul says in Philippians 2, it's therefore, in light of his humiliation, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Well, that's the same pattern for the Christian. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ or united to him by faith, what the Bible says happens is you become raised up with Christ. You enter into resurrection life that's eternal, that's imperishable. So the Christian life, in a sense, begins with crown. Resurrection honor in life is the present reality of the believer. And yet you experience that now in this world in the context of the cross. It's in suffering, it's in weakness, it's in sharing in the sufferings of Jesus that you experience the power of his resurrection. The New Testament just says that over and over and over. And that what awaits us 
is the consummation of glory, the the final crown of glory placed upon the head of the believer. So it is with Jesus, crown, cross, crown. So it is with the believer. Exaltation, risen with Christ, sharing in his sufferings, raised with him at the last day. It's a cruciform calling. And the way he describes that is by means of two descriptions. The one is self-denial and the other is cross-bearing. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, he's telling us that following him means learning by his grace to say no to yourself. It's not that he's calling us to be ascetics, to do without things, to be more virtuous. There's no inherent virtue in deprivation. What Jesus is doing is far deeper. He's actually telling us, let me make it personal. When Jesus says, if you want to come after him, you must deny yourself, here's what he's telling you. If you want to come after me, you've got to reckon with the fact, you've got to admit daily and embrace as reality that you're wrong and I'm right. That your agenda, your, the way you would tend to go about life is totally uh, upside down and messed up. Now, that's hard for you to hear, isn't it? That Jesus would say to you, if you want to come after me, the only way you can follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, it begins with and continues with this admission that I'm wrong, Lord, and you're right. Uh, I will give myself to you. I follow you, not the other way around. I submit to you, not the other way around. I say no to myself and yes to you. And that's the pattern of the Christian's life. Self-denial, no to self, yes to the Lord. I don't live for what I want, but for him who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how the Apostle Paul speaks in the, sec- in the second letter to the Corinthians. The love of Christ constrains us, he says. So Jesus calls his disciples to self-denial. Now, what does our culture tell us to do? The culture says you should always say an emphatic yes to yourself. That you should pursue what's fulfilling to you. That you should pursue what you like. That you should pursue what makes you happy. That you should get out of what makes you unhappy. That you should express yourself. That you should assert yourself. That you should pursue your dreams. That you should follow your heart. Put those two ways of life back to back. They're facing in opposite directions. Jesus says, don't follow your heart. Follow me. Deny yourself. Say no to yourself and yes to me. And that that is, Jesus is not calling us to be miserable. This is actually a call to joy. Because he says, it's actually, it's a great lie. If you live pursuing what you want, following your heart, What that is, is what what he describes as losing your life, forfeiting your soul. You're forfeiting your very self. And all the while you think, I'm fulfilling myself, I'm fulfilling myself, and then you drop into the abyss. But Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. It's self-denial. It's no, Lord, I, I know that I'm fundamentally wrong, that I'm crooked in the way I come to life. But I want to follow you, and so I'm going to deny myself and come after you. And though it feels like death at work in me, and though it feels like war because it is, what's actually happening is life is being worked. 
I'm gaining my life by denying myself. The way of Christian discipleship is the exact opposite of self-indulgence and self-trust. Whoever would save his life will lose it. If you want to cling to your idea of what's good, of what you think you should have, what you think you should need, if you want to white-knuckle that, forget it. It will not work. You will lose your life. And everything you invest in, everything you strive for, everything you try to build, it's all gone. But then he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel. You see, it's not, not whoever's ascetic, whoever's giving, whoever's gen- no, whoever get, loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Whoever loses himself for that, for that purpose, for me, will, will save his life, will gain his, whole, will, will gain his soul. C.S. Lewis, uh, there's a quote on the front of the bulletin from Mere Christianity. Lewis says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself, look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Self-denial. The other requirement is this, and it's harder than self-denial. It's cross-bearing. Jesus says you must deny yourself if you would come after me. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Cross-bearing. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says you must identify with me in my death. You must enter into my suffering. You must say, yes, Lord, I want the cross to, to cast its shadow, its redemptive, loving, painful shadow over my life. I want to live at the foot of the cross. I want that to shape me, to define who I am and how I live. Jesus says that's, the, that's this condition for Christian discipleship. Take up the cross. Jesus did not despise the cross, and so he's asking, will you? Will you despise the cross? Will you try to bypass the cross of Christ in order to get your version of the crown? Because if so, you'll find in the end that the crown you're seeking is it's a fool's crown. It's a mirage and a curse. We need, Jesus is saying, we need a theology of suffering. He's not calling us to like suffering or to seek suffering. The Bible never calls people to love suffering or to seek suffering. But we need a theology of suffering. We're used to eliminating suffering, getting rid of suffering, paying somebody to get rid of suffering, downloading an app. We're used to being able to dispose of suffering. And when we find ourselves in suffering that can't be easily disposed of, we panic. We think, whoa, what what is this? What is this? It's an unremediable unremediable suffering. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you must take up your cross. If you're going to follow me, you'll have to come the way of the cross. Yes, there's a crown awaiting you, but there's a cross as well. Now, what do you think this means for us here in Athens? I look forward to us hearing more stories about what this means for the church in Uganda. I was reading some this week about what this means for Christians in parts of Sri Lanka where there's great suffering, where there's great hostility. But what does this look like for us here in Athens? 
We may not be subject yet to the more extreme forms of opposition and suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel that some other Christians are, but there are forms of suffering for Christ and for his gospel that, that we face and that, frankly, we often avoid. But if the gospel costs Jesus everything, it will cost us something, will it not? What might that look like for us here? Now, here's what I want to suggest, that we tend to think of the big things. Maybe, I, maybe, I'll, maybe God calls me to be a martyr one day. Well, maybe he does. Some of you may well be martyred for the faith. But most of us will take up the cross in the very ordinary daily activities of, of the Christian life. It'll be the daily calling of repentance and faith and making decisions to serve the Lord, to serve other people. That's how Jesus did over his life. Yeah, he lived a, a whole life of cross-bearing, but that life was made up of millions of little decisions to serve God and to serve other people, to love God, to love other people. And that's the way it'll be for us. A, a cross-shaped life is made up of cross-shaped days. And so I want to make two very common suggestions for how this needs to be applied to us. Two things. If you are going to follow Jesus Christ, this will mean faithfulness to his word, which will lead you into suffering. Second, if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, that will mean truly serving other people, which will lead you into suffering. Those are two things, faithfulness to the Word of God and faithfulness in service to others. Now, let me unpack each of those briefly before we come to the Lord's table. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you absolutely always must essentially feed on His Word, believe what He says, take it into yourself, and live accordingly. You've got to be faithful to the Word of God. You've got to be Bible people. There's no following Jesus without that. Now, here's three ways I want to unpack that very quickly. What about the exclusivity of the gospel? Are you going to accommodate? Are you going to capitulate? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And everybody around you says, that's offensive. What will you say? Will you stand on Christ alone? Will you maintain that people must be saved and that that only may happen through repentance and faith in Jesus in no other way? Will you stand on that regardless of the response of others to you? Will you lovingly, graciously, humbly, winsomely, yes, but firmly stand on the exclusivity of the gospel? If you will not, you are not following Christ. So following his word faithfully means the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to God. Secondly, what about the supernaturalism of the Bible? What about the things the Bible teaches about this world and how it came into being and things like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his bodily return and his coming in judgment and all these great supernatural things that many, many, many most people in our culture would despise and mock as superstitious, as mythical as figurative. Will you take your stand on what the Bible teaches? 
Will you be a supernatural Christian? The Bible is a supernatural, teaches a supernatural Christianity. So if you would follow Christ, you'd take your stand here. A third example, what about the sexual ethics of the Bible? The Bible says that sex is always wrong except in the context of marriage. Do you take your stand there or are you creating your own standard? If so, you're not following Jesus. The Bible teaches that homosexuality, that that acting on homosexual desires, that practicing homosexuality is a sin. And that His grace overcomes it. You take your stand there? Or is that too hard? So you see, following Jesus Christ means being faithful to His Word. Not just the points where it's generally agreed upon, but at every point. And perhaps especially at the points where there's resistance. So Jesus says, will you follow me? Do you want to follow me? Then you submit to my word. Secondly, following Jesus means living as true servants of other people. Very quickly, that just means a sacrificial commitment of time. It means a sacrificial process of becoming wise. That means you've got to pray and read and think and learn and grow wise so you can give wise counsel to people who need it. It means a sacrifice of being persistent and patient endurance. So to follow Jesus is to follow him into the lives of other people. But don't you realize that as soon as you seriously are called into the lives of other people to serve them, to serve Christ in their lives, how long does it take for you to want to take a step back? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, this is where you follow me. Here's a question underneath everything. How how precious is Jesus to you? How much do you want him? What's your sense of your need for him? And how big do you think his love is? How big do you think the treasures of heaven are? How rich do you think fellowship with him? How, how, How glorious do you think glory really is? Just a little bit better than your best idea for now? How precious is the Lord Jesus to you? Maybe you're not sure about that. Maybe honestly there are plenty of things that are more valuable to you than him. In which case, I need to urge you to think very carefully about what Jesus is saying here. Think about all the things you're prioritizing in your life and ask this question. Are they worth forfeiting my life for? That's the question he poses Is what you're living for worth forfeiting your life for? Would you be willing to die for what you're living for? If it were taken from you, would you still be alive? But many of you do prize Jesus and you do want to follow him. And you need to see the depth of God's love. The king goes to a cross. The conqueror is conquered. Why? Because of love. The one who calls you to deny yourself and take up the cross is the one who loves you infinitely. The one who has given himself for you infinitely. So to hear his voice is not to hear the voice of someone who doesn't want your joy. But the one who has achieved your joy and promised to lead you into it. Will you follow him there? Let's pray.
Lord, as we come to the table and gather around it, we pray that you would hold the cross up again before our faces, that we would see the width and depth and height and length of the love of God in Christ for us, together with all the saints, and that we would see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and realize that one moment of communion with Him is far greater than the whole world. Oh Lord, teach us this. Teach us to believe this and to live this way. In Christ we pray. Amen.